Growing up, I ate heartily from the plate of American exceptionalism that was central to the psyche of the United States in the 1980s. It never occurred to me that my country might risk the kind of autocracy that plagues so much of the world. But today's guest warns that autocrats have risen frequently from democracy over the last century by relying on a simple playbook that has proved as durable as it is menacing. She's Ruth Ben-Ghiat this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week, we're sitting down with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a historian and professor at New York University. She's also the author of Strongmen, From Mussolini to the Present. Ruth, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. So uh, congratulations on Strongman. It's, it's, uh, we were chatting before we started taping, and it couldn't be any more timely, unfortunately. Uh, but for audience members who might not be familiar with the term, what is a strongman? So I use the term to refer to authoritarian leaders, so people who destroy a democracy and have a kind of uh, the old-fashioned one-party state today. You don't have to have a one-party state or they damage democracy, they have autocratic styles of leadership. And I use the term, uh, so they use propaganda, they use corruption, they use violence, but they also use machismo and kind of hyper-masculinity uh, to, um, to legitimize themselves. So that's my definition of a strongman. And these are, these we find that they have emerged from both democracies and other, other forms of government as well? Well, every, every autocracy starts somewhere, and there are ones that are uh, formed instantly by military coups, but in other cases, somebody gets elected, this happened in the first one, Mussolini, uh, and then they progressively destroy democracy, or like Berlusconi in Italy, and I think that Trump uh, in America was uh, trying to degrade and um, you know, erode democracy in, in those countries, and they, they didn't succeed, uh, but they did a lot of damage along the way. So you, you write that strong men use many of the same tactics, and I, I think we should go through some of those tactics uh, sort of one by one. And let's start with an appeal to national greatness. Talk about how that has been a component historically and, and we see it, of course, today with, with Vladimir Putin. Yeah, it's really interesting because these uh, the, the strongmen who have success are often, and Putin came from the world of intelligence. Many of them come from, uh, they have experience with media as journalists or television, and they know how to uh, appeal to the public and say things that the public wants to hear. So whatever the issue is with that's blocking the country being supposedly a, a great country, that's what they hone in on. So, so for Putin, for example, he came to power right after, after the fall of communism and there was a disaster, you know, disastrous economy. 
And so he was always about, let's have national unity, let's have national strength. And Mussolini uh, was all about modernizing the country and because Italians felt that they weren't quite uh, in the center of Europe, they were kind of always on the margins. But what's very interesting is they, they promised to make the nation great. So they're forward looking, they're modernizers, they're futurists, but it's also always about making the nation great again. So they also channel nostalgia. So it's utopia and nostalgia. So Mussolini said, we're gonna revive the Roman Empire. And today in Turkey, Erdogan says, we're gonna revive the Ottoman Empire. And you see how Putin is pursuing dreams of a kind of imperial Russia or reviving some form of spheres of influence and Soviet Union as a superpower. So these, these are patterns that recur with this myth of national greatness. So another, uh, another factor, another ingredient, as it were, of, of this mix is the widespread use of propaganda. And again, if you could talk about that historically and then also come to the present day when propaganda propagates, if, if you'll pardon the horrible pun, through social media. Mm -hmm. So what's, the, the way I structured the book is that each chapter about each tool of rule goes over 100 years. So you can see what has changed and what stayed the same. And one of the things that hasn't changed is, for example, the leader's personality cult, which is a creation of propaganda, very important. And the rules of the personality cult are that the leader is the man of the people, very relatable, man of the everyday, but is also a superman. And he's the man who decides what reality is. Uh, in Mussolini's time, there was a slogan, Mussolini is always right. And only they know, this relates to national greatness, only they can know where the nation is going. So you have this attempt to create um, through, through lies, institutionalized lying, an alternate reality. Uh, and you use censorship, of course, to block out any facts you don't want to hear. And, and all of these things continue um, up to today. But with social media, you have a, also the, the addition of an attempt, which is the Russian information warfare playbook, which is also used by other leaders, used by Orban, used by Trump. And that is, you don't only create an alternate reality, you also, um, you also degrade the notion of truth and the absolute so that looking for the truth becomes exhausting and you can't really know what the truth is. And so the modern, um, I mean, conspiracy theories were always present, think about Hitler and the Jews. But today there's, it's called the Russian of fire hose of falsehood. This is a high uh, intensity barrage of rumors, uh, illusions, conspiracy theories, as well as outright lies, misleading claims. And so people don't, they give up on knowing what the truth is. And that's very convenient to leaders who are there illegitimately. Ruth, one of the other uh, uh, features of the, of, the, of the authoritarian playbook that you write about is virility. And I have to tell yeah. you, as I read that chapter, <laughs> I was sort of horrified and, but also, um, it's just seemed very current and relevant. Um, talk to us about the power of uh, virility in, in the authoritarian playbook. And, and is there some reason that we're always talking about men? 
<laughs> so when I when I did my research, I'm a historian, but I made use of lots of political scientist, uh, you know, researches. And I saw that there wasn't really room for taking masculinity seriously, even though we had, you know, Mussolini and Putin are the two who stripped their shirt off and, and the, the, ma the male body, the body of the male leader is very important as a symbol of him as the defender. He's also a sex symbol. And so I thought, you know, we really need to take this seriously. And in fact, you see how with these dictators and people like Putin today, you, it's deadly serious. It's not just a joke that they're stripping their shirts off and showing how, how virile they are because it connects to corruption. For example, they are the men who get away with everything. They can get away with things that ordinary men and women cannot. And so this kind of lawlessness, which is at the heart of authoritarianism, which is the abandonment of the rule of law and really the legalization of lawlessness. You have criminals in power. And in fact, Berlusconi, Trump and Putin were under investigation when they came to power. So government becomes a kind of self-defense and the masculinity is, is an aggressive tactic to show I can do what you cannot and I am invincible, I am omnipotent and all of these things. And this is something that has endured through hundred years and these kinds of leaders, um, they like to boast about their virility and their strength. And so when Trump uh, in January 2016, when he said, I, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I wouldn't lose any followers, I thought this is a very, very bad sign for America because there's only one kind of political candidate who in a democracy, who would ever say such a thing? But you do that if you're hyper-masculine and you're warning people that that's how you're going to behave. Well, there are, I was also struck by, I think there are about 17 or so uh, strongmen that, you, that, you, that we encounter in your book. More than one of them has either faced allegations of uh, either, either rape or sexual assault. Uh, that, 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 is that a, a trait uh, of, of strongmen in general, or are these just a particularly onerous odorous uh, set of uh, individuals. They, they, these are lawless people. And unfortunately, we see throughout time that um, their personal qualities of arrogance, of brutality, uh, which includes brutality toward women, they just, it's the same, think about it this way. They take what they wanna take. They don't believe they have to ask. They don't believe in debating, so they don't like parliamentary democracy. Um, and, and so a certain type of personality uh, is adapted to get to power this way and then destroy democracies. And this is often a, a, a personality that uh, just does what he wants with everybody around him. So, you, so I, I felt it was important um, to write about these, how M Mussolini and Gaddafi in particular in Libya they used state resources to have these kind of machines of personal pleasure, almost like a Jeffrey Epstein was the head of state and to find women uh, and to you know, have them at his beck and call, they used their um, bureaucrats, their secret police. And so this is a form of rule in which the personal predilections and personal desires of the leader um, become part of state policy 
in a way, and they use the state apparatus for their personal desires that also includes stealing. So Putin has a, 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 an authentic kleptocracy and all the apparatus, Gazprom, all the big conglomerates, they are preyed upon uh, for Putin and his oligarchs. And then they siphon off the profits into the offshore finance. And this is all in the news now because of sanctions. But the, these leaders have always done this. And Gaddafi also had a kleptocracy, did exactly the same thing, also an oil rich country. So the, the, common, the common thread is that everything belongs to the leader personally in his mind. The bodies of citizens, the uh, natural resources, it's all his. And so there's no separation between public and private in the minds of this kind of leader. I just want to follow this thread on the toxic masculinity, hypervirility, you know, through to the one last point, because you write about this. Um, when, uh, when these types of leaders, when these strong men meet authentically strong female leaders, like an <laughs> Angela Merkel, what happens? Yes. Um, so, you know, often it can be confusing because these hypermasculine, openly sexist uh, leaders do promote women. Putin has, he just reappointed uh, a woman to the, as the head of the Central Bank of Russia. Now, not in Mussolini's time, but in 21st century, they often have women. But the key is that those women have to be subordinate to him. The problem comes when you have to deal with someone as your equal. And we saw how uh, Trump treated the apparition of Hillary Clinton. He just lock her up, right? And there's a, a, a story in my book that um, when Putin had to deal with Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, he tried always to psych her out. He made her wait for three or four hours. And he discovered that she had a fear of dogs. Um, and he has a dog and that dog is famous in Russia. And so when they were, she was coming to see him for a particularly del delicate negotiation where he felt insecure, he unleashed his dog uh, in the room. So she would have, uh, hoping to make her have a panic attack. And then she said afterwards, well, he has to do this because this is all he has. He doesn't have any real government. He has no real economy. All he has is this kind of machismo and these tricks. So I thought that was very, a very telling um, episode. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a historian and scholar of authoritarianism at New York University. Her latest book is Strong Men, From Mussolini to the Present. And it provides a sweeping understanding of the tactics and goals that bind authoritarians together 
across the last century. If you want to find her on Twitter, you can do so at Ruth ben That's R-U-T-H-B-E-N-G-H-I-A-T. So have you attempted or, or do you have any thoughts on the psychological makeup of these people? And, and I'm referring to, you know, where they might fall on the DSM. Are, are we dealing with sociopaths, narcissists, borderline personalities, all of the above? Again, I don't know if that's an area where you want to go or can, and it would be, you know, diagnosing from afar, but what are your thoughts on that? So I'm not a mental health professional, so I don't in the book use the terms narcissism, sociopath, uh, but they definitely check the boxes and there is a common uh, personality type. Each one of course is a little bit different, but they are amoral. So they have absolutely no moral code. They are completely transactional. They are completely opportunist. And this allows them actually to appeal to a lot of different people because the kind of checks on lying or on um, deceiving people that others who are not like them have, they just don't have them. So they tell uh, one person one thing and then they tell the next person the opposite. And so that's why throughout history, this type of ruler has these very eclectic constituencies. And this goes up to somebody like Trump today. You have gangsters, you have priests, you have housewives, and these people have nothing in common, but he's told each of them what they want to hear. So that's, the, that's one thing. The other is that there's a demand for loyalty, which is um, never ending. And you can serve him for years faithfully. And if you do one thing, look what happened to Mike Pence, who was four right. years of the poker face, yes, yes, yes. And then he didn't do uh, what, what Trump wanted on January 6th. But this is why there's a myth that authoritarians are very stable and they keep the country together and they're efficient, but their governments are actually totally chaotic because they're constantly hiring and firing people because nobody is ever loyal enough. And this comes from what some would say their narcissism, that they, they need constant acclamation from others. They need to humiliate others constantly. So this actually doesn't make for very efficient governance. So violence is clearly another feature of, of the strongmen playbook and, and there's state sponsored or state sanctioned violence war. We're seeing that today torture, we're seeing that today, but also violence of rhetoric. Can you break violence down for us again, historically and, and today? Yeah, the, these are these are people, and, and this extends from what we just said about the personalities. They're, they're absolutely brutal. They, they don't care about others, and they have this need to dominate. And so they are... Um, they use violent rhetoric from the very beginning. One of the interesting things I discovered is um, they, start, um, they start using this violent rhetoric while they're still candidates. So of course, the example of Hitler who was obsessed with doing away with the Jews and Mein Kampf is full of you know, violent rhetoric and so were his speeches, Mussolini the same. Um, and up to people today where you have Bolsonaro in Brazil who is you know, saying you know, violent things about the left and about um, 
LBGTQ people. You have Duterte in the Philippines, who, while he was a candidate, he said, you know, Filipinos shouldn't vote for me because it's going to be bloody if I win. And then the, the example I cited of Trump saying he could shoot someone. I mean, who does this? Somebody who is violent and knows that violent rhetoric is the way to reach a certain type of people, person. Because what all of these people do is they, they appeal to extremists, to malcontents, and they normalize extremism. This is what you see over and over again. And ultimately, it's, this is very scary, but the goal is to change public perception about violence because it's very, it can be very repugnant to some people to uh, either have to do harm to their neighbors, community members, or see them hauled off and not say anything. But the ideal is that you, you change the perception of violence to make it necessary and even patriotic. And in our country, look what's happened with January 6th, that once the GOP decided it was going to be all in, it's, re, it's recasted as a patriotic act um, and tried to minimize its violence. Or there are people who say, yes, it was violent and we need that violence. So unfortunately, so that there's a direct link between the rhetoric of violence that they start they, they start at the beginning and what happens uh, when they're actually in power. Ruth, I don't know. I'm not really sure how to ask this question, so I might fumble this a little bit. But one of the things that I've struggled with uh, reading your book, but also just observing uh, uh, President Trump over the last six years uh, has been whether or not this was a studied set of tactics that he himself appropriated or if there was an ecosystem of people who said, hey, this is the way to seize power. Uh, do you have a sense of whether or not this is all studied and everybody's just sort of trying to mimic Mussolini? Or if this is actual some, you know, dark power playbook uh, that people are consciously and intentionally adopting? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's both. And Trump is a a very interesting example because unlike the other strongmen, uh, he didn't he doesn't really read. Now I do believe his wife, his first wife Ivana, that he had she said he had two books in his, in their bedroom. One was The Art of the Deal that he wrote, <laughs> and the other was a, 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 a volume of Hitler's speeches. And it's also true that who does Trump admire? He admires autocrats. He admires Xi Jinping of China. He admires Orban. He, he only openly admires autocrats and he watches what they do. So all these guys watch what each other can get away with. And, and in fact, Bolsonaro has been inspired by what Trump has gotten away with. So there's that. But there is no, like Trump is not somebody who's reading a manual, but what I wanted to point out in the book is that he surrounded himself with people who have decades of experience wrecking democracies. There's everybody from the, the kind of propagandist Steve Bannon, who uh, is highly versed in the whole right-wing authoritarian playbook. He's an admirer of Mussolini. You have Roger Stone. Now, Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, both in the Trumpian circle, they had a, lot, they had a um, lobby firm from the 1980s on. And one of their clients, they had many dictators as clients, but they were hired, for example, 
by the dictator Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines in 1985 to help him fix an election. So these are people with decades of knowledge of how to um, you know, ruin an electoral system, how to spread propaganda. That's Roger Stone's specialty. And there are many more people around Trump who uh, you know, legitimize criminal methods of all sorts. Um, so that I felt it was very important to point that out because Paul Manafort was his campaign manager. Bannon was in the government. Um, so this is not abstract knowledge. This is something that is being applied, was being applied in America and is still being carried on by the GOP. So here's something I, I still can't really understand, particularly after reading your book. Why aren't these practices in the dustbin of history? You know, we're less than 80 years from the end of the Second World War. Why, why are people today still following tactics that were introduced by Mussolini and refined by Hitler and, and all of the horrible, horrible, horrible things that resulted from that? I guess it speaks, you, 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 you kind of get into that a little bit in terms of people who follow this, but why? I, I guess my question is why, why, why? Well, from the leader's point of view, it's because they, they feel they work. And every situation is a little different, even though my book shows the pattern. So one of those that directly speaks to your question is that these men find fortune when a society has gone through a lot of change, a lot of social progress. It could be workers' rights. It could be racial emancipation, um, gender equity. And this is very good news and happy for many people. And for others, uh, in, and in the Euro-American context, it's white males, um, white people in general, who feel that their privileges are eroding, their place in society is being taken away. There may be demographic worries. That's a through line. Mussolini was talking about um, how you know, white people were not having as many babies and non-whites were in the 1920s before Hitler came in. Mussolini had a whole plan to protect white Christianity. And the, the code word is civilization. And we hear this today from the American right and in Hungary. So we were very well set uh, after eight years of Barack Obama and many people thought he should never have been president. He legalized same-sex marriage. You had women entering into combat, gender equity in the military, all of these things which are great from my point of view, perhaps great progress, but other people felt they were an existential threat. So Trump was able to read the marketplace and realize, like many people before him, that there was a space for this kind of appeal. And so that's those are the moments where these tactics and these personalities work. Ruth, uh, we literally have about 30 seconds left, but what can citizens do as we confront this kind of potential leader, possibly coming back in 2024? 30 seconds. You, you can, we're still a democracy and you can vote and uh, mobilizing to vote in enormous numbers, uh, also to counteract uh, you know, attempts to have electoral fraud here. So that's very important and never believe uh, that democracy is, it's too late to save democracy because it is not. Um, you have to have hope, you have to have faith and optimism because they'd like to 
make you think that uh, it's all hopeless. We could talk to you for another week about this. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, the book is Strong Men. Thank you so much for being with us. That is all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org. We can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.